Hey, before we begin, a quick reminder that today's episode is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Find us at schnickfoundation.org. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Let's go, y'all. You are listening to The Foundation Podcast. Our goals are to help you build the foundation to live your best life, help solve problems, better serve humanity, and to become a beacon to help inspire change. We connect you with today's leaders, affecting positive and impactful global change. And now, here are your hosts, Todd and Stephanie Schnick. Good morning and welcome back to the Foundation Podcast. I am your host, Todd Schnick. Gosh, it was, uh, I was trying to recall where I had first heard of the organization that uh, we're going to showcase on today's show. And I was uh, one of those mailing lists that I'm on that talk about uh, all kinds of guy stuff uh, from photography and bourbon and cool mountain climbing opportunities. One of those kinds of sites uh, showcased a photographer who was uh, highlighting this organization. And so I dug into it and fascinating kind of a kind of a group doing amazing work uh, changing the world and the principle behind it the history behind it uh, was just one of those really cool organizations that just I had to bring onto the show and, and help tell the story they do amazing work we're joined today by Art Delacruz he is the president and chief operating officer with Team Rubicon Art welcome to the show hey Todd thanks for having me Ah, pleasure's ours. I do appreciate you carving out a few minutes to join us on the show today. I know you guys are awfully busy doing amazing work, so grateful for the time. Before we get into everything about Team Rubicon, take a few seconds, tell us a bit about you and your background. Yeah, so I'm a kid who grew up as the son of immigrants in Minnesota, played the typical Minnesota thing, played sports, played hockey, and after high school decided it was time to do something a little different, and I joined the Navy went to the Naval Academy and ended up uh, being commissioned as, as an officer and served for 22 years flying airplanes in the Navy as a Naval flight officer uh, in F-14s and F-18s. So I had a, a great and exciting run there. And after 22 years, my wife and I and our four kids decided it was time to do something a little bit different. Went into the corporate world for about two and a half years after retiring in 2013. And in that, you know, I found that something was missing. You know, I built some muscles and just some kind of personal goals in my time in uniform, primarily built around trying to find a way to serve. And an opportunity came to take the skills that I had in the military and the skills that I had in my short time in the corporate world and apply them in a nonprofit. And that's how I ended up at Team Rubicon. Well, God bless you and thank you for your service. I have to ask, what's harder, being in the service or being a parent to a golden retriever? (laughs) Yeah, well, I I think it's the combination. It's hard all around, but uh, equally rewarding, which is a great thing. (laughs) Well, uh, we are the parents of one golden retriever and the second is on the way. We get her in about a week and a half. So I can uh, bond with you on that. All right. So Team Rubicon, uh, the perfect landing place for a guy like like you with your background. So for those uh, listening who are not familiar with the organization, what's the mission and purpose? And then I have to ask you, obviously, the uh, origin uh, of the title of the organization. Yeah, so Team Rubicon is a national disaster response organization, and our goal is to serve communities by mobilizing military veterans to continue their service. You know, we leverage the skills and experience that they get while they're wearing the uniform, and we help them to go into communities and help those communities prepare, respond, and recover 
from natural disasters or humanitarian crises. You know, we were founded in 2010 by a former uh, Marine sniper, Jake Wood. Basically, he had just finished his time after making deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, saw the earthquake happen in 2010, and said, this reminds me a lot of some of the things that I've seen in Afghanistan. It's a chaotic environment. There's destruction, you know, the, the parallels between those battlegrounds and what the people of Haiti were experiencing after that natural disaster just struck a familiar chord with him. And, you know, he called a bunch of different nonprofits and said, hey, how can I help? You know, here's the number, go ahead and donate the money. He felt he had a lot to offer through Facebook and social media. He organized a small crew of eight people and they deployed to Haiti to make a difference. And that's actually where the origins of Team Rubicon and its name and its brand started. You know, in, if you're a history buff, the Rubicon is a river that Caesar, you know, had to cross. And if he crossed it with his army, it would essentially be a declaration of war. And he was, you know, known in the history books to have said, you know, cast the die as we cross the Rubicon. And essentially, it's a point of not turning back. You know, it's a commitment to a course that you're going to have to play out. And that's what Jake Wood and the people that he'd assembled initially had done as they crossed from the Dominican Republic, where they'd staged up and met and rendezvoused and into Haiti. You know, just this act of, okay, here we go, we're crossing the Rubicon and let's do it. And that, that name has endured and has grown and been a part of our culture, you know, for the past 10 years. Oh, there's such a power behind that phrase. I mean, as a history buff and a business guy, obviously not a day passes that you don't hear that phrase in some way, shape or form. And it just to me, it always is this uh, defining moment in someone's life, career, business, whatever entity that, uh, that they're using that, uh, that reference. So uh, it's great stuff. And for me, it kind of defines what you guys are all about. You know, it's, uh, you mentioned how the founder kind of called some nonprofits and said, well, how can I help? And, and you know, running our own foundation, you know, you're always grateful for financial support. There's no doubt about that. But oftentimes it's more than that, right? I mean, there are people who volunteer for organizations and don't give financially. And that's just as important, if not more so, than a financial contribution. So it's interesting that he wanted more than just to give donations, you know, and that was the genesis of of this idea of service. And I was talking to my wife before uh, we went on the air and I said, if you and I volunteered to go into a disaster area after a crisis struck, uh, we wouldn't know what the heck we're doing. We would have to be trained, equipped. We wouldn't know how to adapt and evolve and deal with this uncertain surrounding. And that's just tailor-made for retired ex-military. I mean, it's, it's when you think of it, what a perfect utilization for someone with that history, that background, that commitment uh, that service mentality. I mean, I, what a perfect genesis to an organization. Yeah, I think it's actually, you know, to, to phrase it a little differently, I think it's actually a continuation of that military career. You know, our chief medical officer is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guy. You know, he never talks about transitioning service members or retiring service members. He always talks in the context of, you know, military members graduate from a service, Marine Corps, Navy, Coast Guard, Army, Marines. And if you approach it from that context of it looks like a graduation, you understand that they've gone to a unique place that gives them skills or experience, training, capabilities, context that you can use later on. So if you look at it that way, it really lends itself to a military veteran saying, these experiences I've had from boot camp till the day you separate, you know, can continue to be reapplied. You can continue to reap investment from it. 
And it also serves as a real multiplier of effect. You know, if, if you and your wife were to deploy with us, right, what better person to lead you in an ambiguous and uncertain environment than a military veteran? Because they've been in that position where they've had to look at their troops and say, okay, this is the situation. This is what we need to do. These are the risks we're going to face. And these are going to be the, the keys to a success while protecting the men and women under his or her charge. So I think, you know, that piece is really good. I think the other part of it too is, I think even to the point of any military member who participates, and maybe this is a, a business context that you're used to using, is I always explain it as Team Rubicon has to curate an incredible marketplace, right? Like a good marketplace, people come and they come there with joy because they understand they can give and they can get. So for our military veterans or our civilian volunteers or our first responders that volunteer with Team Rubicon, we have to be very diligent in ensuring that as they come, you know, they're giving their time. They're giving the one thing that we'll never be able to buy. You know, they're sacrificing vacation with their family. They're sacrificing, you know, time that they can be doing things for themselves to help other people. So what are they getting in return? And my hope is that they get a sense that they're having an impact in the world. And my hope is that they sense that their compassion is actually having action to make things happen. My, my hope is that because they have such a great experience and the rewards are there for them personally, that they'll come back over and over and over because that's a key to our growth and a key to trying to meet this expanding need of around the world because of natural disasters and humanitarian crises. Well, every retired military guy I know is still enormously proud of his or her service. And they'll always be a Marine. They'll always be Navy. They'll always be that. And to then take that experience and that knowledge into work such as this, and then the good feelings that come with being of service and helping those in need in crisis situations, the esprit de corps here has got to be the real power, the real magic behind all this, yeah? Yeah, I think that's a key component of it, right? And you build that by getting the culture right. You build that by reuniting with a lot of the things that they you know, seemingly left when they took off the uniform. We do a lot of post-deployment surveys and annual surveys for our, our volunteers. And three things that they really, really connect with when they join us and they participate in these acts of service, and they are community, identity, and purpose. They love being a part of a, a larger organization and they love having impact in the community. They love having an identity. You know, we wear simple gray shirts emblazoned with the Team Rubicon's logo on the front and back. But that, to, again, feel like you're part of this greater unit and to be able to look to your left and right and reunite with that feeling of, you know, I'm back in the field with people who've got my back. I've got, I'm not going to fail them. You know, that esprit de corps you talk about. And then the purpose, right? It's the mission couldn't be clear. We are going to help people on their worst day. We want to be able to look at survivors and say, this is terrible. The, the devastation is terrible, but we are here. We want tomorrow to be better for you and your family. All right. Well, let's talk about what you actually do. So obviously you'd parachute into an emergency or a crisis situation, say an earthquake or a hurricane or some other situation. Maybe you can outline a couple of other examples, but that's easier said than done saying, all right, well, here's a disaster area. Let's just decide to go there and be of help. There's a lot more to it than that. And the logistical process that then follows that 
I mean, like I said earlier, if my wife and I just decided to, that's hard to sit there and figure out, well, who do I call to go volunteer? Where do I go when I get there? How, where do I stay? What do I, there's a lot that goes into going into a, a, a crisis zone and being in a position to support the, you know, the people on site that are already there. I mean, that's a lot to it. Talk about that process a bit. Yeah, it's, it's a, you know, as you talk about, it's a, a very complex process, but there's some components of the way the organization is evolving, you know, that has simplified it. The first is, you know, we've gone from eight volunteers in 2010 to 137,000 now. Wow. So just like military veterans, they're spread all over the country. And one of the unique things that that enables us to do as they get out of their uniforms and go back into the communities that they grew up in is they're spread all over the country. So these individuals serve as our first logistical point because there's a good chance that someone is part of that local community. So because we have localization, because we have personnel that are located in or around a disaster zone, that speeds up our process of understanding what has happened and what we can do. So that's the first piece of it. And it also leverages the connections that these individuals can make into their community either through their affiliation with Team Rubicon, through their relationships with the local government, first responders, or the community writ large. So that's super, super helpful. And then what we do from that point is generally, we try to walk through a process that's really similar to the military. You know, we try to gather as much information as we can about the storm and the impact on, it might be a fire, a hurricane, a tornado, a flood, you know, all of these things happening across the country on a yearly basis. If we understand uh, based on that, that there is a need, there is damage, that we have skills in our unique mission set to be able to deliver and render aid to, we will send a reconnaissance team out just like the military would. Let's scout out the environment. They understand what can we be done, make an assessment, and then you bring the rest of the troops in behind them via this, this logistic challenge and in scale as we go up. And I think one of the things that's really important to understand is disasters come in all different shapes and sizes, but they're clearly defined by the fact that whatever has happened has overwhelmed the local community's ability to respond. They've exhausted their options. They don't have the skills or the personnel to be able to do it, or they're taking care of their personal lives. So these disasters can be large, like Hurricane Harvey, you know, where we continue to serve in re rebuilding homes, or they could be almost these invisible disasters that flood five houses in the Mississippi Valley, or these invisible disasters that a hurricane that plops down in the middle of Kansas and destroys five or 10 homes. You know, those are the ones that never get on the national news. They never get the attention outside of the local area. And we want to be able to respond to those across the country, not just these large hurricanes, but these disasters that truly impact communities and leave survivors in a place where they really need the help and the assistance. Do you have a team that's surveying the globe and looking for opportunities? And when you see one that you think you could be of some help to, you reach out to the local jurisdiction or do you have to be called in by that local jurisdiction? Yeah, generally you want to be uh, working closely with the local jurisdiction. So that locality and our emphasis on being a part of the community really helps specifically domestically. On the international front, it gets pretty difficult and you have to run through different hoops. So generally, you want to be requested if it's an international piece. Right now, we are 
We are serving in Honduras, delivering water, sanitation, and, and hygiene, you know, after the two hurricanes went through Honduras. You know, and that was done through coordination with other nonprofits, with the government agencies, to be able to arrive, have direct impact, and deliver services. You know, one of the other things that you always, always want to be understanding of is as you deploy into a disaster zone, one thing you don't want to do is create a tax on the systems that support the local community. As an example, if you deploy internationally, you know, ideally you're bringing your own water, you have the ability to have your own lodging, you're taking care of, you know, all of your equipment. So you don't compete for needs, lodging as a great example, or water or food. You don't compete with the people who are really struggling in that disaster. So we take that into account as well. But to your point about logistics, complicates everything. And you need to build the systems that can support the people as they move forward. For those listening who have never really been a part of something like this in terms of a disaster area, I don't think they realize how complicated the thing is on the ground in terms of all right, who's in charge here, who's making decisions. Uh, uh, I mean, that's the other advantage, I think, of ex-military is that they understand how to work with disparate teams. They understand chains of command and they get their place and, if necessary, are willing to lead. I mean, I, I, again, I just go back to, I mean, what a perfect utilization of someone with this background and experience and skills. Yeah, I think that synergy is certainly apparent, you know, every day. And, you know, you're, you understand that once you're there, there's some structure that is leading. You understand that there's an element that is going to support you. And then you kind of understand your role as an individual, as part of the greater team, as a leader or a follower. And you're going to go back and forth into those, those different roles as necessary over the you know, co- course of a deployment. I think the other piece that's also super important there is, again, you have this idea out of the military. We like to say that Team Rubicon takes all the great stuff about the military and, and keeps it and kind of sheds the things that uh, people weren't so fond of while they were, were in the uniform. But to be able to go there and have this reliance on people, you know, left and right, this understanding that there are going to be people that are qualified to do some things and other people that aren't, to understand that safety of the individuals, the people we're serving and of the equipment that we're using is incredibly important. All of those are muscles. All of those are memories. All of that is training and exposure that we had working on airplanes or using equipment in the field or taking a team through a field in Afghanistan or Iraq, you know, all of those things are very, very useful and have direct corollaries in a disaster zone. Yeah, it's not just a guy who fought in the infantry and ran straight ahead with a gun. I mean, this is everyone involved in the military and from the logistical side of this too, or probably even more important (laughs) to, to the work that you do. Are you limited to the Americas or are you worldwide? Well, we'll deploy uh, worldwide. We have an affiliate up in Canada that's been deploying with us, actually. They've sent teams down to help us here in, uh, after the hurricanes in the Gulf Coast. So we work closely with them. And then we'll deploy around the world as necessary. You know, as I just talked about, we've got a team in Honduras you know, that is helping there right now. Certainly in today's time of COVID, it makes deploying outside of the borders and frankly within the borders you know, a little more challenging and difficult. And how typically long are you engaged in a situation? Are you there for a couple of days? Are you there for a couple of weeks? Or does it really depend on the situation? Well, it depends on the situation and the work that has to be done and the roles you'll play. You know, we have some operations that are ongoing. 
after Harvey struck Houston and the, the, the Texas coast in 2017, we spent probably a hundred plus days mucking out flooded homes, taking care of, you know, the things that needed to be with these homes that were, you know, in this incredible rainfall had been devastated. Um, and then we stood up a rebuilding program where we said it's just not enough to stabilize the homes by taking out all the wet drywall and the carpet, the things that would be, you know, subject to mold. We said, let's start rebuilding homes. And we are still there rebuilding homes. We just rebuilt our 106th home in Houston three years later. We just wrapped up our initial um, disaster core operations after Hurricanes Delta and Sally hit uh, Louisiana. So we just wrapped that up, but we're already swinging hammers and rebuilding homes in that same area. So it endures for a long time. I think one of the things people don't understand is, you know, when a storm hits, that's simply the beginning of it. And that news cycle is going to age out. There's still people trying to heal from Katrina. There's still people trying to heal from Hurricane Sandy. You know, there'll be people in Louisiana that are continuing to heal for years to follow. Our goal now is to try to speed up that process of getting there right after the storm and then speeding up that process through recovery as it happens. And, you know, the other note to this is, you know, we are not alone in the field. There is so much associated with these storms uh, and there's so many agencies. They never compete. They collaborate in the field and it's, you know, let's see what we can do for these communities to help them heal as quickly as possible. Yeah, great stuff. All right, so to wear that gray shirt, what's the process? Uh, do you make application? Do you uh, have to do a physical? Do you have to run a, an obstacle course and confirm you still got it? I mean, talk about that process. How do you get involved in this? And is there a long-term commitment uh, or is this volunteer only? Walk us through all that. The first thing you have to do is go to our website, which is www.teamrubiconusa.org. I will tell you that we are a very inclusive organization. I'm a big believer that everybody has a gift to be able to give. We've got, particularly in COVID, we've had people across the country acting in a remote capacity because they're in high-risk populations, but having incredible, incredible impact in rallying volunteers and getting people aligned and, you know, helping us with some of these operations that we're doing related to COVID from feeding operations to medical testing sites. But once you sign up, in order to deploy, you know, we're going to do a background check and then in the field, you join us and you can expect, just like we talked about, that some, you know, sergeant is going to say, okay, this is the job today. This is what you're qualified to do. This is, you know, who will be leading you. These are your obligations to the team and yourself to make this happen. And, you know, if you can swing a hammer, if you can pull a drywall off, if you can hop on a computer, if you can organize people, if you can help facilitate lodging, all of these elements are crucial in having a successful operations. So for the people who join us, we will find work for you. The one thing in the expectation we have, you know, is again, just these simple rules of taking care of one another, being a participant in solutioning and having impact and being a team member are the things in the field which really, you know, discriminate success. You know, uh, we all recall Fred Rogers from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He had this great line. He says, um, you know, when there's a disaster, uh, don't get depressed. Just look at what's happening because just look for the helpers. There's always people that are going to land there and try to do some good. And I have to assume in a situation that you guys get involved in, there are people on the ground that are trying to do some good and trying to be helpful who just don't have the experience or the background or the knowledge of how to really be. So if that was me and I landed somewhere and I was trying to just volunteer and help and all of a sudden I saw a bunch of gray shirts 
walking around doing their thing, boy, I would, that would give me great comfort. And I, and I think, that, I imagine you guys are still providing leadership just because there's a, there's a, all right, these guys know what they're doing. They're confident. They, they have the backing of a good organization. And this, this is a good people to rally behind as we try to do some good here. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly it, right? It's, um, there's a high trust in military veterans. You know, there's high competence in those types of situations for military veterans. I think the other element of, you know, kind of that military training for the men and women who've worn the uniform is they continually go through this process of, okay, we'll train. Let's prepare for game day. Let's prepare for game day. Let's find the right players, get people in the positions and show up and do the job. They're very, very good at after-action reports. So the reflection and the continual learning that happens in the process of going, all right, we just finished up this operation in Houston. What can we do better? What do we need to double down on? Because we did right and it had incredible impact. And then what have we learned as we've, we've done it? The other piece that's super, super valuable is this idea of leading spontaneous volunteers. You know, you just referenced someone who's not a part of an organization, we go into a community and they say, listen, this is where I grew up. How can I help? You know, we'll throw a, a t-shirt on them. We'll tell them, here's your strike team lead. We'll say, this is what you're going to do today. And we'll make sure that they're safe, that their time is well used and they'll have impact. And I think one of the things we're going to, we see here in kind of this national disaster we're experiencing now as a result of COVID, right, is this preponderance of need this incredible, you know, rallying cry for our nation to say, you know, how do we heal? We believe we have a part in that. And we've demonstrated it, I think, in what we've done in, in COVID and in being able to take all of these things that we traditionally use for disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes, etc., and breaking them apart and saying the leadership skills that they, this man or woman demonstrated at a hurricane site work pretty well at a food bank. Oh, by the way, they were a logistician in the military. So they kind of understand what things look like as things need to be sequenced. You know, they're trained in Six Sigma and Lean. And we continually, you know, our hope is that as we participate with other organizations, we learn and we also teach. And that virtuous cycle begins to really feed itself. And ideally, together, we are having great impact every day as we face these challenges and opportunities in front of the nation. Oh, that I have no doubt. You mentioned civilians earlier. I mean, if a guy like me says, here's what you guys have to say, learns what you guys are all about and says, well, I didn't serve in the military, but I want to be a part of that. I mean, is that possible? I mean, can you volunteer? Can a guy like me wear the gray shirt? Yeah, of course. Our organization is about 70% military veterans. You know, it hovers between 70 and 80%, sometimes as low as 60, and it depends as the veterans join. But we have a lot of what we call a very technical term here, kick-ass civilians, you know, that join us in the field. We have firefighters, we have EMTs, we have paramedics, that makes you sense. know, they all join us. And you can imagine sitting there, you know, despite the fact that the military has a bunch of different trades and a bunch of different expertise, it's also really nice to have this cognitive diversity where someone says, hey, I actually work on solar panels in my civilian job. Uh, you know, that actually happened to us after Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas we'd come across this site where a, a, a site full of solar panels had been obliterated. And through this, it was amazing to watch people go, hey, I'm an electrical engineer. Hey, I'm a solar technician. And you know, a day and a half later, we've got clean water pumping through this area because you happen to have this group of people with experiences. I always, I always use that analogy of Apollo 13, where this challenge to get carbon dioxide out of the capsule <laughs> and they, they throw this stuff on the table. 
you can imagine if we're throwing experiences of military veterans and experience of first responders and experiences of civilians, you can do some pretty fantastic things in that moment that you wouldn't be able to do if you didn't have that collection of people. So please, I'd encourage you to sign up and we'll get you dirty out in the field. Absolutely. And there's a lot of people yearning for that. Yeah, no, that the filter reference in Apollo 13 is apropos to, I'm sure, a lot of what you guys have to do on the ground when you're thrust into a situation uh, where something is needed to get done. That's a, a good way to think about it. What's next for Team Rubicon? I mean, where's this thing going? What's the long-term vision for what you guys are doing? Yeah, so, you know, we're pretty aspiration in our goals, right? We are already planning for what we look like in 100 years. And I, I don't say that jokingly. I say that from this, this idea that everything we build now has to be an investment for tomorrow. Every move we're making now is really, really critical, ensuring that we can get to communities you know, in the country and around the world and have impact in disaster services. We're doing more around the disaster cycle where it used to be we'd show up right after the storm, stabilize the situation and leave. You know, Now we're rebuilding homes. We'd love to have people be more resilient as storms approach. So we're starting to explore how do we make sure that people are prepared? Do you have an earthquake kit? Are you ready to evacuate? Have you gone through all of these? Do you have your documents collected? And those are things we're doing. And the final piece we're doing is really how do you take all of these different systems and connect them to the survivors so they can heal as quickly as possible? A lot of the people we are serving now in, in Houston, as an example, after Hurricane Harvey, They've been in systems for three years and they've talked to multiple agencies. They've had people that have come on and come off. And can we actually serve as a point to get all of these different services to collect as they go through this process of healing? I think one of the other unique things that we're doing now is, you know, the pandemic is just so unique. We've repurposed our skills. We've helped stand up and run field clinics and decompression sites. We've had medical providers, former military medics at the Navajo Nation, helping some of the most in-need populations in the country in the wake of the pandemic. And now we're trying to explore how can military veterans and all of those incredible things that they throw on the table, you know, when they say we need to get this done, how can we help with the vaccination Mm. piece is the next thing we're trying to tackle. Yeah, that's the next big logistical challenge. Uh, someday they'll write books about how we do that, uh, whether we do it right or we or we don't do it right. Uh, fascinating to think about how that's going to unfold. And we're in the midst of that thinking now, or should be. So, well, great stuff. Well, I think I can speak on behalf of everyone listening, uh, Art, uh, that we're grateful that you guys are there doing what you do. So appreciate uh, the important work that you guys are doing for, frankly, the globe. So thank you for that. Before we let you go, should anyone need to connect with you and learn more about Team Rubicon and how to get involved in it, where do they go? Go to uh, teamrubiconusa.org and you're going to see a couple of things. You know, again, we can, we can always use financial support. We've got all sorts of information on the operations we're doing. As we've talked about here, Todd, I look forward to you and Stephanie joining us in the field is, you know, sign up. And one of the unique things about our volunteer system is you've always got enough time. You can say no to us 10 times. The one time you say yes makes it all worthwhile. We understand people have lives. We understand people have families. But to be able to connect at that point of need and that time that works for the individual We would love to see everyone join us in the field or support us in some manner, especially, especially if you're a military veteran out there looking to reconnect with community, looking to reconnect with an identity and looking to have a clear cut mission again. 
Amen to that. Art Dela Cruz, the President and Chief Operating Officer with Team Rubicon. Art, again, it was great to have you. Thanks for the time this morning. And again, appreciate everything you guys are doing to, to serve the world. Thanks, Todd. Really appreciate the time as well. All right. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. Again, on behalf of my guest, Art Dela Cruz, I am Todd Schnick. We'll see you soon on The Foundation Podcast. The Foundation Podcast is produced by Intrepid Media and is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Learn more by visiting schnickfoundation.org. And thank you for listening. Now, get out there and do some good, and we'll see you next time.